are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here for this week's question and answer time. And maybe the first thing I should do is give just a little bit of an apology for saying that we haven't been able to do the question and answer time either live or recorded for the last several weeks. I've been away with a wonderful group of people touring Bible places in the Mediterranean, including a few stops in Israel, but also places like Cyprus and Crete and Athens and Rome. It was a tremendous trip, but I'm glad to be back and I'm glad to be taking part in another question and answer time, this time one of our recorded versions. Today, I want to open with a question that I'll phrase like this. Should we listen to Jesus more than Paul? Let me just say that again. Should we listen to Jesus more than we listen to Paul? Now, this kind of came because a few weeks ago, I ran across a tweet from a prominent evangelical. And this is what that prominent Bible-believing Christian wrote in their social media sentence. They said this, and I'm going to paraphrase it. If many people say one thing and Jesus says another, I would go with what Jesus says. Now, let me repeat that just one more time. If many people say one thing and Jesus says another, I would go with what Jesus says. And by the way, I regard that as being a true and accurate statement. Let me go on there. Then next they wrote this. Paul and Jesus are not equals. I know this is hard for some to accept, But Paul is not our savior. Then in one more tweet, they said this. Paul would be horrified, I believe, by the way he has been deified, regarded as God, or equal to Jesus. Now, let let me just talk about what they said there. First, the, the statement, if many people say one thing and Jesus says another, I'd go with Jezus. Absolutely true. I agree completely. And by the way, I I don't know if you've noticed, I'm not telling you who wrote this particular tweet because I don't want it to be about them. I want it to be about the ideas that they expressed. There may be a time and a place for discussing that particular person, but right now I want to put the focus on what they actually wrote. Okay, here we go. So it's true that we should uh, give our attention to Jesus. If Jesus says one thing and somebody else says another, then you go with what Jesus says. Absolutely true. Secondly, they write, Paul and Jesus are not equals. I know this is hard for some to accept, but Paul is not our savior. That's absolutely true. The apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, this one who is this remarkable missionary apostle and messenger of the early church, he was a great man, but by no means was he the equal of Jesus. Never. Paul's not our savior. Paul didn't die on a cross for us. Paul's not God. Jesus Christ is God. And obviously, the Apostle Paul was not, is not. Now, the third thing they tweeted was this. Paul would be horrified, I believe, by the way he has been deified, regarded as God, or equal to Jesus. Now, let me just say, if that was true, if there's anybody who deifies Paul, that is, makes him God, if there's anybody who regards Paul as God, if there's anybody who regards Paul as being equal to Jesus, I don't have any doubt whatsoever that would horrify Jesus himself. And it would horrify Paul is just as much, if not more. Yes, Paul should never be put on the same level as Jesus Christ. But if anybody thinks, and that's really not a but, it's more of an addition. If anyone thinks that the person of Jesus Christ 
and the person of Paul the Apostle are equal, they are not. Now here's for the but. But when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, he was not any less inspired than Jesus Christ. Do you get the difference there? When the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, he was not one bit less inspired than Jesus himself. See, here's how it is with the Bible. Jesus does not say one thing, and then Paul says the opposite. They are in agreement because both the Bible-recorded words of Jesus Christ and the Bible-recorded words of Paul the Apostle are equally inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let me say that one more time. Both the Bible-recorded words of Jesus Christ and the Bible-recorded words of Paul the Apostle are equally inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if they ever did truly disagree, and I'm speaking only in a hypothetical way, of course, if they ever did truly disagree, take Jesus. But that'll never happen because the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. Do you get the idea here? Now, it is wrong. I'll say it. It is wrong to take the words of Jesus and to use them to cancel out the Bible recorded words of Paul or James or John or Peter or Jude or Luke or the author of Hebrews or anybody else who was a God appointed author of the New Testament. Now, let me tell you what's even worse. It's even worse to take the supposed silence of Jesus on a particular topic and to use that supposed silence to cancel out what the Holy Spirit wrote through Paul and through others in the rest of the New Testament. What do I mean by that? Well, let me use a real-world example of this. Now, you know that homosexuality, same-sex marriage, uh, the relationship between homosexuals and heterosexuals, and how Christians and the church and the Bible do regard and should regard homosexuality, that's a huge issue in the church today, of course. Now, some people say that Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. That's not quite true because Jesus did completely affirm specifically and explicitly, Jesus completely affirmed the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law certainly speaks about homosexuality. But if we were to suppose silence of Jesus on homosexuality, now I want to make it clear. I don't think it's proper to suppose silence of Jesus on homosexuality, not only in the instance that I talked about in affirming the Old Testament law, but then in a few other places as well. I do think that Jesus did speak to the issue of homosexuality and other sexual sins. But to take the supposed silence of Jesus on a particular topic and to use that supposed silence to cancel out what the Holy Spirit wrote through Paul and others regarding homosexuality or any other sexual sin, or sin in general, or anything else. Brothers and sisters, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. So we have to be very careful with this and understand that the Bible-recorded words of Jesus are not any more inspired by the Holy Spirit than the Bible-recorded words of the Apostle Paul. So where does this all come down to? Well, let me give you kind of three pointers here. Number one, Put Jesus first. Unashamedly, we can say that as believers, can we not? We should put Jesus first again and again. We are not primarily followers of the Apostle Paul, though we love him, we respect him, we honor how God used him, but, but we are not Paulicans, so to speak. 
We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ. So always forever put Jesus first. But number two, and this is very important, have a high view of inspiration. A view of inspiration that acknowledges that God used human personality in bringing forth the Bible, but that the Holy Spirit has truly worked in and through and around those human personalities to bring forth the real Word of God, just as much as the Word of God as Jesus spoke himself. So the Holy Spirit has inspired the Bible-recorded words of Paul and Luke and John and Peter and all the rest of them, and Jesus himself, of course. So please understand that. But the third one is, I will acknowledge that there's something special about, if you want to call it, the red letters. Do you have a Bible like that? The Bible I have right here on my desk is a red letter edition. And a red letter edition simply means this, is that the words that they would attribute to the speech of Jesus, the words that Jesus spoke as recorded in Scripture, those are in red. Now, I would say it this way. The red letters are not any more inspired by God, not any more inspired by the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is God, not any more inspired by God than the rest of the letters. However, I do think that there's something special about the Word of God through the personality of God. What do I mean by that? Well, when Paul writes, you get a feeling for his personality. When, uh, when uh, John writes, you get a feeling of John's personality. When Peter writes, you get a feeling for his personality. We, we understand that, that when the Holy Spirit inspired these men to bring forth the Holy Scriptures, the Bible-recorded words that we have today, when the Holy Spirit did that, he did not overwhelm their personalities, but their personalities still find expression in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, those words. Now, there is something special about the Word of God through the personality of God. And there's something special about that. But it doesn't make those words of Jesus any more inspired. It just makes them maybe worthy of putting in red in your Bible. So if we get back to our original question, should we listen to Jesus more than Paul? Well, if you're just going to state the question that way, I would say yes, but we understand that in their Bible-recorded words, Jesus and Paul never contradict, and they're not more inspired one over the other. Okay, I hope that's clear enough for you. Now, I want to go on to a couple more questions that have come in through social media, email, maybe comments in the YouTube videos. Here's a few questions. First of all, Nicholas writes, and he says, thanks for asking my questions a few weeks back. He says, um, uh, here's uh, a couple more challenging questions if I'm up to it. First of all, Nicholas asks, do I believe there's any merit to the conditional immorality view? Conditional immortality. Did I say conditional immorality? Listen, if I said conditional immorality, that was a mistake. We don't believe that the Bible promotes immorality, conditional or otherwise. But the conditional immortality view is something of interest. Now, here it is. Conditional immortality is the belief that only those who are saved, only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, only those who have eternal life, those are the only ones who will be raised from the dead. Conditional immortality is a form of annihilationism. 
It's not quite annihilation, but it's a form of it. And there's different concepts of what that means. And I'm not going to spend the time to go into it all. But Nicholas just flatly asked me, what do I think about the conditional immortality view? Well, I don't favor it by any means. I think that there's enough scripture that tells us about the resurrection, not only of those who are saved, of those who have eternal life, but also the resurrection, if I could use the phrase, the resurrection of the damned. Let me read you John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. It says this, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all those who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Friends, I just need to say, if we take those words seriously, that should send a chill up or down our spine, wherever way it wants to go, up or down. The idea of the resurrection of condemnation, that's a heavy thing, but Jesus clearly seems to be speaking of here, what do we call it? A resurrection of condemnation. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46 speaks of those who go away into eternal punishment. And it certainly doesn't sound like they cease existence. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says this, those going away to the penalty of eternal destruction. So I would just say from the plain reading of the scriptures, I do not think much of the conditional immortality view. Now, there have been a few theologians and Bible commentators that otherwise I respect who have gone after this view, but I just don't agree with them. Look, I don't believe that every Bible commentator or every theologian that I respect is correct on every point of their theology. And even though I've read and understand the arguments that they're making, I think that the balance of the evidence argues against the conditional immortality view. Now, here's a second question from Nicholas, and he asked this. Do you think Jesus intends to meet every believer individually? Or, presuming that he will, how will he do so in a reasonable amount of time? Now, this is kind of an interesting question because we know that there's going to be a lot of people in heaven, multitudes without number. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven. Not, not everybody goes to heaven, of course. The Bible tells us that. That's kind of indicated by the last question we dealt with. So if there's a lot of people in heaven, how does everybody get some face time, so to speak, with Jesus? Do, do you get the situation we're talking about? I mean, if there's 100 million people in heaven, of course, I believe there's going to be more than that, but if there's 100 million people in heaven, how long will it take for Jesus to spend 15 or 20 minutes or five minutes with everybody? Now, how does that work? And that's why Nicholas asked the question, if we do believe that Jesus will meet every believer individually, how will he do so in a reasonable amount of time? Now, let me just put it this way. I would think so, yes. I believe that every believer in heaven is going to have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, how does that work? How does Jesus have enough time on his calendar to make an appointment with every single person that's in heaven? I think this is a problem of eternity meeting time. What do I mean by that? Well, here's simply what I mean. I think it's very difficult for us to understand how eternity and time connect together. We are bound in an environment and existence of time. That's all we know. 
It is so hard for us to conceive what it would be like and what it will be like in the world without time. Because sometimes we think of eternity as being an extremely long amount of time. That's not what eternity is. Eternity is the absence of time. And so what we have here is just a simple difficulty of eternity meeting time. How do they connect together? There is a sense in which Jesus could meet individually with every believer in the eternal now, because it doesn't have to be sequential or a long time or a million years or whatever you want to talk about it. So these are aspects that I think are just too big and too other dimensional for us to get our heads around how eternity meets time. But I just got to think that Jesus is going to have some time with every individual believer in heaven. Now, there's a third question that comes from Nicholas. It says this, Do you think that Jesus interferes with our dreams to the extent of preventing us from dreaming bad, perhaps evil dreams about him? Now, this idea of dreams, and again, what Nicholas is asking here is if Jesus interferes with our dreams, if Jesus prevents us from dreaming bad things, even if that would include bad things about Jesus himself. I would just say this. There is nothing to indicate that Jesus will prevent us from dreaming bad dreams. I just got to be honest with you. This is an area where the Bible doesn't tell us very much. And really, science doesn't tell us very much. Uh, Science doesn't really tell us all that much. As far as I know, look, I'm no scientist, but as far as I know, scientists doesn't tell us very much about why we dream what we dream. Sometimes what we dream makes sense. Uh, you know, I had a stressful day and so I had a stressful dream. I had this and so I dreamed that. Sometimes it seems to make sense, but there's lots of times where we can't really make a connection about why we dream what we dream. So uh, I don't see any scriptural promise that Jesus will prevent us from dreaming bad dreams. Now, this is obviously if somebody has been troubled by bad dreams, If somebody's had anxious or troubling dreams or nightmares, this is something to pray about. This is something to bring before God, to make your request known to God, to ask God to help you, to deliver, to draw near to you, to to be close to you in that particular situation. It's a very, very important thing to do and to ask. All right, we're going to wrap up with a couple more questions. The first uh, additional question is a question from Ruth. Ruth asks this question. Hi, David. Are women permitted to teach when there are men and women in a Bible study? Now, Ruth, your question is very good. And I have to say that just as you have presented it to me, I don't know if I can give a full answer to it. Uh, Again, I, I know you know Ruth and other people know. I've done a pretty extensive teaching on this in my studies through Uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy. And so if you go to the third study in the series, uh, the series that picks it up in the middle of 1 Timothy chapter 2, you can find some real in-depth teaching right here on my YouTube channel about that whole issue of men and women in the church. But let me kind of boil down a few conclusions of this for you. Number one, I would say this, is that the sense in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is one of the places, not the only places that talks about a woman's role in the church, but it's the most pointed, obvious place. The issue seems to be an exercise of teaching authority in the church. Here's how it's phrased in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. And it's talking about in the congregation. 
The whole context there is congregational life. So what Paul's saying is, when he says teach and have authority, he's not talking about two different things. He's talking about the same thing. Women should not be in places of teaching authority among God's people. Now, here's the question. This is what makes it a little bit different. We understand the principle. How the principle applies can sometimes be difficult. Is every exercise of a woman teaching an expression of taking authority? Uh, So the way I phrase it sometimes is this, is if you think of a whole continuum, people have no problem largely speaking, with a woman teaching a women's Bible study. No, people have no problem with a woman teaching a first grade class, a third grade class. Then when you start getting up at junior high and high school ages, there begins to be a difference of opinion. There are some people say, no, we will not let a woman teach a middle school group. Other people say, no, we will not let a woman teach a high school group, a senior high group. What I'm just trying to point out with this is that there are people who agree on the principle but disagree on exactly how it should be applied. But the principle is important. So, Ruth, to fully answer your question, are women permitted to teach when there are men and women in Bible study? I would want to know a lot more about the Bible study. I'd want to know, is this just a bunch of friends sitting around talking about the Bible? Is this a function of a church? Is this a quasi-church? Is this... I would want to know more about the circumstances and why about the circumstances, because if it relates to that teaching being an expression of spiritual authority, especially spiritual authority in a congregation. So that's the principle, Ruth, how it applies to your specific question. We'd have to know more about that. Okay, last question from Bitri. Bitri asks this question. My question is, if works and righteousness do not save us, then how do I understand Matthew chapter 5, verse 20? Because there Jesus says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Beatrice, I got to say, you're asking a great question. If righteousness, if works do not save us, if they do not count in our own uh, standing before God, then why did Jesus say what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20? He said this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will know you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, between let me again, I, I just want to compliment you on your question because I think you're getting right to the point of something there. When Jesus spoke about our righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees, and that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. I believe that when Jesus said that, there was a gasp from everybody who listened to him. Let's remember, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, specifically the scribes and the Pharisees, they were more religious and more obedient and more committed in their following of God than just about anybody you could ever imagine. I mean, they were absolutely in the smallest way, trying to obey the law in every single small measure. I mean, these guys were fully committed to trying to obey the law as the rabbis defined it to the very best uh, of their ability, the best that they could. Now, when Jesus says those guys up at the standard and says, we have to have a righteousness that only equals what they do, but exceeds what they do, I imagine everybody that heard Jesus at that moment said, then there's no hope for me. 
I can't do it. And I think that's exactly what Jesus wanted them to think. Because what Jesus was pointing out here was that the righteousness that gets us to heaven, the righteousness that enables us to enter the kingdom of heaven is not a righteousness that's of the same kind as the scribes and the Pharisees, just more of it. It's a righteousness of a completely different kind. You're not going to get to heaven by having a greater measure of righteousness on the same scale as the scribes and the Pharisees. You are going to get to heaven by having the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself credited to you. Because I'll tell you what, you know who had a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees? Jesus did. And this is what the Bible says, that as we put our faith in him, not only does Jesus take our sin and bear it on the cross, but his righteousness is credited to us. Beatrice, I'm going to speak to you as if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, because I expect you probably are. But Beatrice, I'll say to you, you have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, because you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a thrilling idea? And so we can just take great wonder, great confidence, great just comfort in this thought that we have this righteousness of which Jesus spoke. Now, we don't have it because we have outperformed in ourselves, the scribes and the Pharisees. I don't know if we ever could outperform them, but we have this righteousness because by faith, the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been given to us. And he had a righteousness that far exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, Beatrice, great question. I hope the answer was helpful to you. Well, that's going to be it for this particular edition of the question and answer. I'm glad you could join me. Please subscribe to our YouTube. You hear this all the time, don't you? Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Click on the bell for the notifications. Recommend the YouTube channel to others. Click on the likes, you know, the little thumbs up. That's always helpful. It gives our videos a little more visibility. And um, if you want free Bible resources that many people find helpful, you can find them at my website, EnduringWord.com. There I have a commentary throughout the entire Bible, plus a lot of audio and video resources that you can access. Check them out for yourself, EnduringWord.com. And I want to say an ongoing thank you to each and every one of you who pray for the work of Enduring Word, especially our work of translating my Bible commentary into other languages, and uh, who support the work. You're a real blessing to us and I believe to many other people. Thanks for this week's video and join us next time we can get together for one of our question and answer videos. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.